Welcome to WP Tonic, episode 149, and today we've got Carrie Ford in the house. Uh, Carrie, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you. Sure. So I'm Carrie. I'm a front-end developer at WebDev Studios, and I am super stoked about things like atomic design and WordPress and front-end development and cats. So yeah, that's basically me. <laughs> Sweet. Uh, I also want to introduce my co-host as Jonathan Denwood. Jonathan. Oh, thanks, John. I'm the co-founder of WP Tonic. We're a WordPress maintenance, um, security, um, help me, help you make sure that your right website is running and you can concentrate on your business. We're a boutique maintenance company. And also we help agencies and other WordPress professionals if they're looking for a trusted partner around plugin and custom theme design, John. Very good. And I'm John Locke. My business is Lockdown Design. And I help blue-collar businesses with their WordPress sites, specifically their local SEO or WooCommerce integrations. So diving right into it, I want to ask you, Carrie, I'm always fascinated by people's origin stories, how they got to where they're at today. Mm -hmm. And I know that you've had several years in technology. So tell us a little bit about how you got to where you're at today. Sure. So I um, started my career at Cisco. Actually, I was kind of a data wrangler for the sales team there. And um, I actually moved to the UK for that job. And when I was in the UK, I went to a blogging workshop. And that's where I first learned about WordPress. Um, Up until that point, I was using Blogger, which was like kind of okay, but it wasn't great. So then I dug into WordPress um, after that workshop and I was like, whoa, this is really cool. Um, And I actually spent several weekends creating a child theme for my first WordPress site. And I was like, this kind of development thing is really, really awesome. And I think this is what I want to do. Um, but at the time, I was kind of stuck in the UK with my job. I couldn't look for any other jobs. And once I decided to come back to the US, I actually got laid off from my job. And I think a lot of people would normally be bummed about that. But I was actually pretty excited because I was like, oh, great. Now I have a perfect excuse to pursue what I actually want to do for a living. Um, So I went back to school for graphic design, started learning a little bit about both design and how to write front-end code. And then after that, I started, or I actually applied for a job at a company in Oakland called Mighty Minnow. And um, it was kind of like a, they were actually looking for like a fully fledged developer, but I was like, I'm really keen. Like, I really, really want to learn. Like you guys are doing this cool WordPress stuff and I want to get in on that game. And so I actually got hired there and I met some of my best friends uh, at that job. But unfortunately it wasn't quite the learning and growth opportunity for me. So I tried freelancing for a few months, learned that that also wasn't for me and then decided to apply for a job at WebDev. Totally didn't think I would get it, but found uh, got an email from them the, the following day after I submitted my application, and they were like, we want to interview you. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is great. Um, and that's how I got to where I am. Excellent. You know, so uh, you describe yourself as a front-end architect, and it sounds like you're a little bit of a, a unicorn, like you do graphic design and front-end development. Uh, you know, uh, what does your day-to-day look like 
you know, right now at, at Web Dev Studios? You know, what kind of stuff do you find yourself doing? Um, a lot of like what front-end developers do at WebDev tends to be more of taking Photoshop comps and actually turning those into WordPress themes. Um, but also, like I've kind of found, I'm working on a rather large project right now where we're trying to like we're trying to get ready for like pushing everything to production. And so I found I'm kind of like looking at code and trying to figure out like how can we optimize our front-end code so that we're like maybe chopping out like some extra code we don't need or like make things a little bit more optimized just in general. So um, it's mostly, it's not so much design for me, um, but it is a lot of like actual development. Well, like as a front end developer, you, you, a lot of us, cause I, I typify myself as more of a front end developer, but there's a wide spectrum in that. Right. And and definitely, like, you're the person standing in between. You, you kind of have to understand, like, a lot of stuff. Like, the design, you have to understand. You have to understand how to translate that into back-end code because, you know, you're writing. Um, you know, how difficult is it to break into front-end de- development, especially, like, in today's environment? Um, I think it really depends. Like, it depends, I think, on your hunger, and like how tenacious you are as a person. Um, you know, I'm in my 30s and I uh, I was in my 30s when I first started working in development. And I honestly was like, oh, I don't know. I feel so far behind. There are all these like young kids who are, you know, have been able to do it since they were teenagers. Um, and I think it really depends. Like, I, I think the advantage I had is that, you know, working with data kind of fundamentally helps me understand the logic of working with databases, which, isn't necessarily what I do with WordPress, but like having that ability to speak that language when I talk to say a backend developer is kind of helpful. Um, But I would say like, really it comes down to like how determined you are. Like I have no life and I just tinker with WordPress related things in my free time. Um, So like I have my full-time job and then I'll take like a break and then I'll start working on maybe a plugin or a theme on the side just to kind of like, really focus on areas that I want to solidify in terms of my development. Um, So I think, you know, if you're doing that kind of thing, and then if you just like reach out to people and be like, hey, I really like what you're doing. Like, that's kind of what I did with both Mighty Minnow and Web Dev Studio. So I was like, you guys are doing these really hip things. um, And I kind of want to be a part of that game. Uh, Web Dev Studios, especially, they have, they, we have a great blog. And I had been following the blog for months and I was like, you know, you guys seem really hip. Like I've learned so many things. I've like kind of looked at a lot of your GitHub code and I've borrowed things for some of my personal projects. And like, I just want to learn from the best of the best. So I think, you know, just having that hunger is really what will get you into the game uh, these days. Definitely. I, and I'm glad you mentioned, you know, um, that, that you have a lot of projects that you do outside of web dev. And, um, you know, one of those is the Alcatraz framework mm-hmm. and, and tell us a little, tell us a little bit about, bit about that, what it does and, and why you created it. Sure. So, um, I think I like to think of Alcatraz as kind of like Genesis, but better <laughs> in a way. Um, so it's a, it's a framework that I created with some friends when I was at Mighty Minnow. Um, so basically, the the problem we were trying to solve for ourselves is that 
a lot of the like, low end, low end, like low budget client work that we were doing was based off of this multi-purpose theme from Theme Forest, which we all hated. <laughs> and we were like, we just want to make something like that's a, a joy for us to develop with, but will also help us be more productive as a team and give us learning opportunities. Um, it didn't actually come to that, uh, unfortunately, but we did learn a lot from doing it. So Alcatraz for us is like, it's got lots of hooks like Genesis does, but it's also, it's based on underscores. So it's got a lot of the same like kind of um, things that underscores has where if you want to write like a template part, you can you you can do that and it's really easy to extend and do uh, quick theming with we've put in a lot of things like different navigation styles so you don't have to waste time writing like boatloads of CSS just to whip a simple navigation into shape. So those are the kinds of things that we were aiming to achieve with the framework. That definitely sounds interesting. Um, you know, another one of your projects that you're working on is a plugin uh, for WordPress for for style tiles. Mm -hmm. You know, and tell tell everyone a little bit about style tiles. You know, what they are if they're not already familiar. Sure. And and what your plugin does. Sure. So um, style tiles were this idea that was kind of. Uh, pulled together by a designer named Samantha Warren. And what they do is it's a way to kind of add, like establish a visual design language for a website. So let's say like you're, you're working on a new website design. What you might do is you might like take the logo and then gather some color inspiration and image inspiration and typography and like kind of try these things out together before actually spending time working on a Photoshop comp or before actually getting into the browser and doing anything there. Um, so I created a WordPress plugin. Initially, this was created as a, a Photoshop template. Um, and as much as everybody loves Photoshop, I was like, eh, not everybody's strong with Photoshop who necessarily wants to do design. And sometimes it's nice to be able to share what you're working on directly with a client rather than exporting a, a PSD or whatever. So I created WP Style Tiles, which takes the idea of the style tile and actually brings it to WordPress. So what it allows you to do is it allows you to you know, you can gather the, the logo, you can add color chips to like uh, visualize different color scheme possibilities. Um, you can test out typography and, and those kinds of things. And you can actually share the link to that to your, with your client and they can give you feedback directly on the style tiles. So if they're like, oh, I really like this, but I don't like this, you know exactly what they're talking about because it's just like a comment on that style tile rather than like a vague email that's like, I like this, but I don't know which one I'm talking about. So <laughs> that's kind of what I was aiming for uh, with that plugin. No, definitely. And I, and I remember when style tiles were first a thing and, uh, you know, reading lots of articles and, it, you know, seeing it mentioned in books too. <laughs> but, um, you know, do, do, do clients seem to, uh, you know, get that, like they're, they're just kind of picking the kind of broad strokes of the components before you get down into the minute details? Um, it can be a little bit challenging. I think what 
is necessary is kind of explaining that like establishing this visual design language before actually getting started is really helpful. Um, even if you can only nail down like a few things at a time and then take those few ideas. So let's say they're like, oh, I like these colors, but I can't actually visualize how this would look on my website. At least you can take those colors and like maybe put together a simple mock-up that's like, here are some colors or, you know, kind of test out those ideas a little bit further. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, it, it, and picking like the swatches and, and like typography like that is an important part of starting. And, um, you know, one of the things that you talked about at WordCamp Sacramento uh, just a few months ago was atomic design. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and tell us, tell us a little bit uh, about that and how, how you became a proponent of, uh, you know, using atomic design. Sure. Um, so atomic design is this idea of starting with like the smallest kind of level of uh, like a actual web development project. So say like you're starting with your HTML elements and you might go ahead and style all the HTML elements you see yourself using and then like taking those little building blocks and putting them together. And so let's say you start with a button and then you might take you might also start with uh, search input and so you might style those and then you would take it to the next level by putting those two things together um, and styling those in a new context of like here's a search field um, and then kind of just building on your design as you go. Um, I kind of became a proponent of this just based on like my knowledge from working or from learning graphic design, but also just kind of the the stuff I've seen, like the projects I've worked on, um, both at Mighty Minnow and at Web Dev Studios, where I could see having this more componentized approach is actually quite helpful in driving consistent designs. Yeah, definitely. Like having a consistent visual language. And and all the projects that that you're involved in, it really seems to um, be cohesive like that. Like you know, having uh, um, a centralized like visual language for for user interface it makes it easier. Um, when people veer away from that, you know, what kind of uh, pitfalls are there? Like when you don't have like a cohesive uh, UI style. Sure. Well, I think it's it's really confusing. Like, let's say I think I think banks are like notorious for having like really inconsistent styles. At least uh, Chase Bank, which I use, um, I log into my my like account and I'm like, there are like twelve different green buttons, and like presumably they have different meanings because they're different shades of green. But maybe they don't actually. I mean, maybe it's just one action, um, but because they've kind of added that complexity to it by just making them different, slightly different colors of green, um, I'm a little confused. So I think that like having things like that can really confuse users. They can, they might wonder like, is this like a different color for a reason or whatever? Um, but also, I mean, even from a developer standpoint, and I think this is kind of what sparks my interest as a front end architect is, when you we're not making sure that our our interfaces and our design systems are consistent we're also introducing um potentially really bad code or unmaintainable code um, if we create like a new button or write new css for a button every time we see a button we're making our code very difficult to maintain 
So that's kind of the like where where design meets development for me is trying to make sure that we're delivering as consistent an experience as possible. So yes, so basically, you know, having like a pattern library, mm-hmm. um, and 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 you know, thinking about like the atomic parts of your user interface design keeps everything organized and on point. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I really like in terms of like atomic design and actually developing in that way, I'm a huge proponent of using kind of native, like this native idea of like functions in PHP and in WordPress specifically. Um, maybe, you know, if you're creating say, a pattern library in WordPress, you could start with your atoms and maybe you just develop really simple functions that are like, I want to create a button. And then you can, you know, when you want to use that button in say a search form, you can just call that function that makes that button. Um, and that's kind of the way I've gone about trying to make things a little bit more consistent in, in terms of design and development. That's actually a really great idea, and I'm and I'm surprised that more people like haven't taken the lead with that. But that that would be like just an amazing, um, you know, a quick way to prototype things and, and keep them consistent. Right. Um, you know, definitely. If what are some you know, if people are more interested in learning about atomic design, uh, mm-hmm. in in addition to your talk uh, that you gave, what are some other resources that people could, you know, look at to learn more about it? Um, There is this brilliant front-end developer named Brad Frost who actually wrote the book on atomic design. And it actually just came out or it's about to come out in uh, paperback. And you might still be able to get it for free on his website at atomicdesign.bradfrost.com. Or at the very least, you would be able to order it um, to read it. But it's really great. He kind of outlines, you know, from the like actual idea of atomic design through how you can incorporate it into your process and like kind of talking about that idea of like how do you kind of get client buy-in for this process and and those kinds of things so it's a really great book excellent excellent um you know and if people are wanting to learn about pattern libraries is is are there resources for that as well um, yeah, for sure. So there's this really great resource called Pattern Lab, which is um, maintained by Brad Frost and another guy whose name I can't remember. Um, so it's patternlab.io. And it's really great. Even if you don't use Pattern Lab itself, it's really fun to go look at the demo and kind of get a sense of like how these things work. Um, also, I've got, I'm kind of currently working on a branch for um Alcatraz that's incorporating a pattern library into the theme. It's just kind of, as you can imagine, like setting up that initial pattern library is quite a task. So <laughs> it's uh, it's still kind of in development, but if you wanna see kind of a little bit of how I think about uh, pattern libraries in terms of how we can maintain them in the context of WordPress development, it's probably worth checking out. Awesome. I think we're uh, right up against our first or our break. So uh, we're going to take a few seconds. And uh, then when we come back from the break, we're going to talk more with front end architect Carrie Ford. See you in a second. 
Buying or selling a home in the greater Reno Tahoe area? I know the best CRS real estate broker, and that's Karen Conrad. And you can find her at karenconrad.com or call directly at 775-527-7021. We're back from our break, and we're talking with front-end architect Carrie Ford. Um, Jonathan. Yes. Yes, John. Do you have a... You have some questions. Yeah, sure. Um, Carrie, um, about usability, uh, especially for disability, there's been a lot of discussion about that, and it was brought up in uh, WordCamp US um, to Matt as um, a couple of questions. But it it does seem to still be quite um, a hurdle for a lot of people to implement best practice. Do you think um, there's a way um, in the way themes are made or through plug-in solutions that could improve, make it a bit more simpler and improve the situation? Um, In terms of making themes more accessible, I think it's really up to developers to educate themselves. I know at web dev we're trying really hard to at least designate a few people who are becoming like really hardcore subject matter experts in the the uh, area of accessibility and they're going to be kind of our gatekeepers of like people who are able to look at uh, code rewrite or kind of guide us as a team in terms of the code rewrite um, to make sure it's more accessible but I think it's really down to, you know, if you're using, let's say, a starter theme for all of your projects, making sure that when you're working on that theme that you bake accessibility in and then just be aware of when you're adding things to your theme, like as you're diving it out for a client, making sure that you're writing your code to the highest standard. Um, Unfortunately, I don't think there's one solution or one easy fix to make accessibility um, kind of like the standard. Yeah, do you also think it's also these best practices also make it easier if you're looking at a theme that might have to be translated into multi, multiple languages? Do the two kind of complement one another? Oh, for sure. Um, you know, if you want your theme to be um, translatable, it's really important to make sure you're adding in like the translation strings and doing that kind of work. And I mean, that's a, that's actually a really simple win. It's like anytime you write out static text, you know, you put it in the correct like escaping translation string and, you know, that makes it a lot easier for a translator to go into your theme and actually do the translations. So, Yeah, I definitely think they go hand in hand. Um, Unfortunately, I think translation is just that tiny bit easier, but it feels like accessibility as a whole is kind of getting the bigger spotlight right now, as it should be. I think we should really be aiming to make websites for everybody and not, you know, just making them for the able-bodied or whatever. Yeah, I think that's great, um, Gary. Um, I was really interested in, you know, when you were saying about, you know, this framework that you and some of your uh, friends, online colleagues have developed. Um, obviously, they're, they're, when somebody's looking, there seems to be a lot of kind of quasar themes, quasar frameworks, like skeleton, you know, a lot Mm-hmm. out there you know and the two big i think uh, like like you said genesis and um hybrid um are two uh, popular ones so 
what was it about the Genesis framework that you felt um, that you wanted and to develop some some alternative? Is there, you know, I know Genesis got its great strengths, but what you know, what are some of its strengths and some of its weaknesses? I suppose that you've worked with it quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't worked with Genesis as much as I've worked with kind of more underscores based frameworks, but what's great about Genesis is that hook system and just being able to hook into things and just write like add action, do this function, whatever. Um, but that also kind of makes it, I think it, I, having not worked in, I, I actually was looking at a potential client project that was based on Genesis and I was just trying to kind of get my head around it again. And I was like, I can't do this anymore because this hook system is not as flexible as being able to like actually write your PHP in line with whatever HTML markup you want. And that's where I think that benefit of using template parts comes in is like, you know, you can create a template part and you can put in whatever HTML you want and then just write your PHP in that that template. So, you know, I think hooks are great for things where you're like, oh, well, I want to add like say a banner in like right above my content that, and I want to do it on all these pages. Like that's that's a great use for a hook. But if you want to change the look of say one template, then that's where a template part I think comes in a little bit better. And I think that's why I've been kind of a big fan of what we've done with Alcatraz because it's made it a lot more straightforward for developing um, those types of things. I think what you've just said is the kind of um, really, really interesting in conception, really, um, where somebody like you is a front-end developer and designer, your um, sensibilities, because uh, I know as soon as you, as soon I could hear the voices being shouted down the microphone as you, as you were saying about mixing HTML with PHP. That oh, you get spaghetti code then, you know, <laughs> you you get the you know these hardcore developer types that are used to, um, that really want to separate logic from um, layout. They would be grinding their teeth a little bit, Kerry, but. Right. On the other hand, because of your background and your sensibilities, I totally understand why you find that attractive. Would you agree with me? That's the kind of cavern that, um, in language, in a way, that um, hardcore developers and front-end developers um, hit, if you understand yeah. where you come from. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, I'm not saying, like, you should write your entire functions in a template part no. by any means. No, no, obviously not. <laughs> Um, but you know, like, I think it's, it's helpful to understand, like, let's say you write a function in like your template, your template tags.php file or your extras.php or whatever file you write your, your functions in. And you're like, I'm going to do this thing and I might want to use it in a few different places. Like, you know, being able to like, say like, I'm going to put a div here and then call this function to me, like you can see exactly where it's going to execute. And that's kind of huge. Like... I feel like with Genesis, it's it's a lot of like, I have to figure out where all the hooks are and then where they're going to execute and then maybe manipulate the priority on top of that to make sure it's in the right order or whatever. Um, and like, that's not, you know, if that's the way you're used to developing, that's, that's awesome. Um, just for me, it was racking my brain and I was like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. So... <laughs> 
Uh, I, to- uh, I totally agree with you, Kerry, and I-, I think it was a good um, explanation of the difference to the listeners. Like to ask another question, John? Yeah, I would love to. Um, you know, I- I've seen you listed somewhere. I can't remember where. Maybe it was like on Twitter. I'm not sure. As as the refactoring queen, <laughs> uh, you like re- refactor CSS. Yes, um, I love to. I, I you know. So I, I have this, like, this, there's this book I was introduced to when I still worked at Cisco called StrengthsFinder 2.0. And it's like, you take a quiz and it will tell you like what your greatest strengths are. So you can help use those in uh, your career and personal life. And at the time I was like, these results are crazy, but now they totally make sense. So one of mine was Maximizer. And um, I, as I was kind of rereading the passage, like a few weeks ago, I was like, this makes sense. Like the idea of a Maximizer is taking something that's already good and making it better. And that's where refactoring really comes in for me is I look at like, oh, we've got this thing and it's functioning and it looks great, but we've maybe like rewritten the same code and like seven different CSS partials. So, you know, I, I spent like a few weeks where I was just going through a bunch of CSS and saying, okay, we, we seem to be repeating code here. Where can we take this and consolidate it and make our code slightly more efficient so that we're not, you know, going too specific or not specific enough or whatever. So that's, that's one of the uh, things that I really enjoy doing in my day job. Definitely. Now, and and I can see that because I've done a couple of CSS refactors and it can be like really kind of painstaking. Mm-hmm. And maybe if it's like a small, small business website, it's not going to make a lot of sense. Right. But when you're dealing with larger sites, um, when every split second of efficiency counts, yep. then it starts to make a little bit more sense. You know, what are the types of projects where a refactor, um, you know, is beneficial? Um, I would say like any, any project that, you know, is going to have a lot of like for any client, you know, is going to have a lot of traffic. Um, let's say you've got a client who relies on like an e-commerce site. Um, I think that was kind of like the impetus for one of my major refactors was, um, just making sure that, you know, we had this large client with an e-commerce site and we wanted to make sure that like our code was as efficient as possible. Um, but I think, you know, that's also kind of what drove my interest in atomic design is like, why refactor when we could just do it right from the start and be more strategic about how we parse out tasks for the front end development or whatever, um, and, and make our code more strategic from, from the start. So I would say otherwise, like, you know, if you can't be more strategic and you do end up in a refactoring hole, um, it's good for definitely large clients to make sure you're, you're delivering the fastest experience possible in the front end. Uh, do, you, do you have a specific, uh, you know, methodology or framework for writing CSS? Uh, for example, are you a fan of the block element uh, modifier type of writing CSS or is there a specific way that you do it? Uh, that's interesting. I'm actually kind of in like, 
I'm kind of at a stage right now where I've been actually researching all of these different methodologies. So I've been reading about BEM. I've been reading about um, the IT CSS, which I believe is inverted triangle CSS, which takes like broad things and like narrows them down to very specific things. Uh, there's, there's SMACS, which is scalable modular CSS. Um, I, I spend way too much time reading about different methodologies and trying to figure out like which one is the best or is it like some combination of the different ones. So at the minute, I don't have anything that I favor specifically. Um, although if I had to choose one, it would probably be a little bit more of a BEM flavored um, CSS approach. Excellent, excellent. Um, you know, as as a front end architect, uh, you know, JavaScript is becoming like more and more of the web. I mean, uh, you know, every everything uh, sits on a you know a triangle. You know, uh, you've got your HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Uh, right. But but what are some good resources that you have found for people that want to start learning JavaScript? Well, I'm one of those people who wants to really learn JavaScript. So um, a lot of the resources I've been, kind of, I've just kind of been like investigating resources myself. Um, I did find this one website called JavaScript is Sexy and it seems a little like weird, but it had this whole like six or eight week course uh, outline of like, you look at a book and then there were some various tutorials and things like that. And I started working on that. I'm about halfway through. Um, and that's been actually really good. But it's, I don't know, I kind of felt like it was necessary to supplement that information. So I also had been doing Treehouse for a while. And I've signed up for a bunch of other courses, like the Word the JavaScript for WordPress course that Zach Gordon's offering. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, I haven't actually started it. So I think really what it boils down to is just making it, uh, trying to incorporate practicing your JavaScript in a, on a day-to-day -day basis, if possible. I know it's really hard when you're first starting out. It's like, well, how do I use this? I think that's the, the thing I've always run up against. Um, but you know, if you can find some like little project to hack on, that's really the best way to do it. Definitely, Jonathan. No, I, I, I think I totally agree, Kerry. You know, it's just hard to find the time, isn't it? Because you're very active in the WordPress community. Plus, you've got a full-time job. Plus, you want a personal life. Something's got to give, hasn't it? You know, yeah. um, it's just finding the time um, to really... Mate, but Matt Gaul um, Gordon's course, I think, you know, he's a fantastic guy. You know, he's extremely experienced based on the years that he worked with Treehouse and he's been on he's I would classify him as a friend of the podcast because he's been on the show a couple of times and he's just a cool person, Kerry. Yeah. Just, I, like, I think he's great. Yeah. I haven't actually met him, but I just love his energy. It's like contagious. Um so yeah. Yeah. Um he's just a cool cat as I would say, John. Uh um, but um, so I would highly recommend his course if you can do it, folks. But it's finding the bandwidth, really, isn't it, Kerry? Yeah, uh, I think so. So um, what do you see um, in these? Because it was really in, also interesting saying, you know, styles of writing, CSE. You've been looking at various ones a bit too much. 
and you come to some conclusion but there is no clear leader that's what the impression i was getting it was down to personal taste to some <laughs> degree what do you see some of the trends in css and um, front-end development in the next year then we're coming to the end of the year is sure. any any kind of trends that you see coming up in 2017 um, I think for 2017, the big one's going to be CSS Grid. Um, there are a lot of people who are already really exploring it. It's such an experimental feature that you have to actually enable the ability to support it, I think, in Chrome. Um, but I believe browser support for it should be landing sometime in spring. And that, I think, is going to really change how we actually do CSS layouts. Um, you know, floats aren't a perfect thing. Flexbox isn't a perfect thing. But I think using especially Flexbox in conjunction with CSS Grid will be huge in 2017. I think I, I totally agree with you because I, I haven't been practicing the code for, but I was a front-end developer to some extent and, you know, getting away from floats and find, finding a flex, you know, it, is too, it will be 2017 and still to struggle with grid layouts to the extent you do is a bit ridiculous really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, um, and the amount of time you have to spend on it. Um, I think that's great. Got another ending question, John, and then I think we'll go on to the bonus content. What do you reckon, John? Yeah, let's definitely uh, let's end it with this. I mean, you know, it, it, like myself, you started in your 30s uh, doing front-end development. Um, so, you know, what resources do you recommend to someone who's wanting to, you know, learn front-end development and, and do what you do? Um, sure. So I think, you know, if you can wrangle a membership to Treehouse, either through your library or paying for it or whatever, I definitely recommend Treehouse. Um, I think the pace at which they, they go through the content is really good. They give you lots of examples with that you can follow along to. Um, I think that's great. There are, you know, if you're really looking to learn JavaScript, um, I know West Boss is doing some really great stuff. I've been working through a little bit of the ES6 course. He goes blazingly fast. He's a very excited dude, but the content is great. Um, I totally would recommend any of his courses. I know he's done some, you know, a lot of JavaScript stuff, but he's also done Flexbox and things like that. And, um, you know, if all else fails, just try to make some friends in the community and like find a mentor. Like that's really what helped me, I think, get to where I am right now. I mean, I'm still really early on in my career, and I work for kind of an awesome studio. And I think that comes down to making good friends when I was at Mighty Minnow and having somebody who could kind of mentor me a bit and help me learn what I needed to learn to be a good developer. Excellent. Um, so definitely, um, we're going to end the regular podcast and we're going to remind everyone that if you're getting value from this podcast, be sure to check us out uh, on iTunes, leave us a detailed review. And for the bonus content, you can head over to the WP Tonic website uh, for episode 149. There'll be some extra content there. Uh, Gary, how do we get a hold of you? Um, well, you can find me on Twitter at Carrie Ford. Um, my name starts with a C, so it's C-A-R-R-I-E-F-O-R-D-E. And yeah, that's really the best place to reach me. So if you have any questions or whatever, hit me up. Cool. 
Jonathan, how do we get a hold of you? Oh, um, before I do that, John, I'd like to point out that Kerry's going to be joining us on the Saturday show. She's oh. going to be joining our crazy panel folks. And uh, <laughs> we, um, it should be fun, shouldn't it, John? And Carrie um, seems um, really up for it. So it should be a fun show, shouldn't it, John? How? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, how people can get hold of me. It's quite simple, folks. So you can either email me, um, Jonathan at wp-tonic.com. And um, also, I'm reasonably active on Twitter. I have kind of days when I'm on it and days I just don't bother. It goes with the mood, really, folks. So that's at, at Jonathan Denwood. And they're the two main ways to get hold of me, John. Excellent. And uh, you can get a hold of me at my website, which is LockdownDesign.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Lockdown underscore, or you can follow my Facebook page. Uh, it's just Facebook.com slash Lockdown Design. Uh, for WP Tonic, uh, John and Jonathan and Carrie signing out. Adios. Bye. Bye.